From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Bloomberg is now on your dashboard. With Apple CarPlay and Android Auto, it gives you access to every Bloomberg podcast, live audio feeds from Bloomberg Radio, print stories from Bloomberg News in audio form, and the latest headlines at the click of a button with Bloomberg News Now. It's free with the latest version of the Bloomberg Business app. That's the Bloomberg Business app. Get it on your phone in the Apple App Store or on Google Play. Just download the app, connect your phone to your car, and get started. And it's all presented by our sponsor, Interactive Brokers. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Let's go back out to uh, the West Coast, uh, to San Francisco. SpaceX discusses spinning off Starlink via IPO as soon as 2024. I don't know what's going on there, but Ed Ludlow does. He's the host of Bloomberg Technology. He's out there somewhere in California. I don't know where. Sometimes he's, he's in the desert for these rocket launches. Dude, as soon as late 2024, that's not soon at all. Exactly. I'm not putting that in my <laughs> as budget. As far away as late 2024. <laughs> yeah. That's like 100 years from now. Exactly. Ed, what's happening with our good friends at SpaceX? Yeah, all, all good points. Look, sources tell us that this this IPO, which is a spin-off of Starlink as a separate unit, could happen towards the end of 2024. The end of 2024, we have an election, so bear that in mind. And if not 2024, 2025, and Matt, you're completely right, that, that is distant. But this is highly anticipated, right? You know, given the recent news flow, Musk confirming that Starlink, which is SpaceX's satellite constellation-based internet service, has reached cash flow break-even, that is what he has said pretty consistently over the years would be the trigger to work towards um, a listing, spinning off through a listing. And what my colleagues and I are reporting is that even though that is far away, um, they're taking really material steps towards doing that. So for example, one source told me that they're already shifting Starlink's assets, its business assets, its people to a new wholly owned subsidiary to prepare it to be a sort of standalone unit ahead of an IPO. The amazing thing to me, um, you write this in, in your story with Gillian Tan and, and a couple of other Bloomberg News reporters, um, they're expecting Starlink to generate $10 billion in revenue next year, which eclipses that of the rocket launch business at SpaceX. So it's essentially yeah. a, a bigger, it's essentially their core business at SpaceX, right? At least judged yeah. by sales. Exactly right. It's essentially their core business. So what we reported 
was that revenues due to jump significantly next year to around $15 billion. This year overall, it will be about uh, $9 billion with a pretty even split between launch and Starlink. But next year, Starlink will be the vast majority, more than 10 billion. Guys, I just want to say for sheer transparency with the, the audience that as soon as we publish the story, Elon Musk responded to a user on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, who had posted a screen grab of the story, an image of it, and Musk's response was one single word, which was false. So on the face of it, Musk is denying the accuracy of our report. But uh, I, I would also tell our audience this is not the first time Musk has replied or posted on X about something I've reported saying it's false that in the end is proved completely true by regulatory or legal filings or otherwise. I mean, this sounds like a really you know, cool business, admirable business, you know, connect, connecting parts of the world that, you know, can't get, uh, you know, I guess, internet connectivity besides it. Are there competitors yeah. to Starlink out there? Well, the legacy uh, inter uh, space-based internet companies like Viasat, for example, but they've just not been able to make this a business um, in the way or the speed that Starlink has. I, you remember, Paul, when I was in New York last week, we talked about Starlink's revenues. And the reason that it's worth discussing and reporting the stepping stones towards an IPO is that, that this is the mainstay of SpaceX's future, right? Everyone kind of wants an association or investment into an Elon Musk company. <laughs> SpaceX is a private company. And although there is some liquidity in the trading of its shares on the secondaries market, and from time to time a tender offer where employees can sell shares, there isn't really much opportunity to have ownership of it. So there's a lot of interest here. Um, but Starlink has been a game changer for people to access the internet around the world where they otherwise have not been able to uh, because of the, the satellite and ground receiver based technology. Well, and a lot of people first heard about Starlink because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine the Ukrainians using Correct. Starlink to defend themselves. Um, there, there, there is a competitor from Jeff Bezos, right? I can't pronounce it, but it's like Project Kuiper. Kuiper. Yeah, Kuiper, yeah. Well, of course, yeah, and because it's, it's spelled K-U-I. Yeah. Well, exactly so. And, and what they're trying to do is the same thing. Jeff Bezos has a, a, a rocket company. It's called Blue Origin. Um, but in the first instance, they're relying on United Launch Alliance to put... Uh, and other carriers, sort of legacy rocket companies, to put Kuiper satellite constellations into space. They have a very small, like, single-digit number of early prototypes. But it's this idea that, you know, you can have... Whereas Starlink coverage. has 5,000, right, Ed? Exactly. And, and, and not only does Starlink have 5,000 or in the thousands, that, you know, these are satellites which go in low Earth orbit, and from time to time they have to be decommissioned or they get broken. But the other success of SpaceX is that it kind of feeds itself, right? You and I cover so many launches so regularly. And SpaceX has a rocket launch company where it's able to put its own constellation or maintain its own constellation with constant launching. And so let's fast forward just a little bit real quick. This Friday, we might see Starship attempt a second full launch. It's big, shiny, pointy rocket you may have seen. <laughs> and the significance of that is not just that that, that technology has the long-term goal of getting humans to Mars. I can hear Paul's eyes rolling and him creasing. <laughs> uh, but 
actually, if they can get Starship to be uh, successful, it's the most powerful rocket ever designed and made, then they can even ramp up Starlink even further and, and take that 5,000 constellation to 10,000, 15,000, 30,000. And actually, at Bloomberg Intelligence, they've, they've crunched the numbers on that, and it basically helps you dominate uh, connectivity worldwide. So to date, Ed, has, has Elon been funding SpaceX just out of his own pocket? Well, I love that story. You know, uh, you guys, you guys have been at Bloomberg a long time, right, on the news side, and we historically have not covered private companies as closely as we cover public companies for obvious reasons. But the cap table of SpaceX is fascinating. You have names like Fidelity and Sequoia on ah. there. You have high net worth individuals. You have Elon Musk and Gwyn Shotwell, who Elon Musk being the CEO, Gwyn Shotwell being the president and COO of that company. Um, there have been tender offers. Again, that's where uh, staff can sell their, their, their stock units that they receive as compensation to, to buyers on the secondary market for simply liquidity. But when that opportunity comes about, sort of traditional asset or investment managers, high net worth individuals, even retail investors, clamor to get a piece of that. Yeah. Partly because of what we've reported, there might be a Starlink IPO soon at the end of next year, but also you just want to own something because of Elon Musk's track record. So the cap table is really interesting. Yeah, there's a great new podcast, Elon Inc. Have you been listening to Correct. it? No, that's from Bloomberg Business Week. Yeah, David Papadopoulos. Uh, I never realized that he has such a good voice for radio. Yeah. I mean, I've heard him, you know, yammering at me in the newsroom, and it's not the same. <laughs> but uh, Elon Inc., what a cool um, podcast, which covers obviously all of the, you know, the whole empire. So Starlink, SpaceX, Boring, yep. Tesla, Twitter, which some people insist on calling X. <laughs> um, and it's it's such a cool, uh, cool thing. So Starlink, maybe at the end of uh, next year, but we won't be able to get a hold of the launch business of SpaceX as a public company. Uh, my understanding and, and the understanding of my colleagues who reported the stories is that, that once, if Starlink spins off into a public company, SpaceX, the remainder, which is largely the launch business, uh, remains a private company. You know, and, and the transaction based on past precedent is, you know, every SpaceX shareholder of note or record would receive, receive an equivalent volume of, of Starlink shares. Obviously, their value would be changed uh, relative to whatever they held the private SpaceX stock at. So that will be interesting. And just on that, there's only so much money you can make sending things into orbit. Right, the per launch True. margin is much lower than than a database business. So Musk has said in the past that it would cap out at like three billion dollars of sales a year. Actually, I'd heard that this year it's more like four four billion, four and a half billion. But it has a limit. I know that because I read Ed Ludlow's reporting. Do you look at you? And I watch and listen to him on Bloomberg Radio and Television. SpaceX ways spinning off Starlink via IPO as soon as 2024. Uh, but following Bloomberg's report, Musk called it quote false in a post on X, the social media platform he owns without elaborating. Ed Ludlow, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Uh, Ed Ludlow, he's a host of Bloomberg Technology. He's wired in. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, 
top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. You're listening to The Team. Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Jay Hatfield joins us. He's the CEO, founder, and portfolio manager of Infrastructural Capital Managers uh, Advisors. He joins us here live in the studio. He doesn't phone it in, <coughs> folks. Jay, there's no inflation out there. You've been saying this for a long time. Inflation's been coming down. CPI data this week, PPI data this week. Did that surprise you at all? Because it seems like it's a <coughs> positive surprise for the market. Uh, thanks, Paul and Matt. Well, we've been pretty public. We put out a piece on October 31st, and we said this on uh, national TV uh, last week that this the CPI and PPI would print cool, but that's not because we speak to God or anything. It's just <laughs> simply that we focus on oil prices and energy prices as a leading indicator. Yep. And what's not appreciated, even by our Federal Reserve, which is hard to believe, is there's a substantial bleed through of energy prices to core. And we did see that. If you think about it, there is no business in the United States that doesn't use energy, but some use a gigantic amount of energy. So food is 40% energy, airline fares. So you get both an immediate bleed through, particularly in airline, airline fares, eventually to food. <clears throat> and so that's one reason we've been bullish and thought the rates were too high at 5%. We thought they'd come down to kind of this range and might stall out around here. But I would focus on energy. And then also the other strange point about this report is we kind of already know next month's report. So you don't have to- In terms of know. CPI. <clears throat> yes, because what happened, which is pretty unusual, is that it was sort of like a bell went off the first day of October and gasoline rateably dropped 10% during the month. Yep. So guess what? Only 5% was reflected in October and there's gonna be another five next month and we're already halfway through the month, so it's unlikely to, to skyrocket. And, just, and also retail is lagged. And just to that point, the daily national National average gasoline price, regular unleaded, three dollars and thirty-four cents uh, today. It was three dollars and ninety cents just back in mid-September. Right, and we kind of know that that will decline for the rest of the month because what happens is when wholesale comes down, there's a lag because you have inventory in the channel. Yep. So the chances ah. we kind of already know that we're going to have a cool uh, CPI and PPI, both headline and core, for next month as well. So that's pretty bullish. Um, now, now, the core is what really counts, right? Because the energy prices really are transitory. The swings that we've seen mm -hmm. um, just in the last year show you that. I quote your CPIR um, index quite often, which is your own proprietary index. I find it on the infracapfunds.com page. And you've come, it's come down substantially compared to what the BLS gives us. Their core CPI mm -hmm. right now is four spot one three, right? And yours is... Oh, sorry, this is September, but it was 4.13 and yours was 1.3% mm -hmm. after having come down below one. Right. Um, yours was also higher than the highest core CPI uh, back in June of last year. So it was higher. It's been much lower. Do you think it's possible that inflation resurges again? Well, I, I wouldn't totally ignore the energy price dynamic because that does feed through to the whole economy. It has knock-on effects. <laughs> and... Keep in mind that we have an 80% cost advantage on natural gas, too. 
because we're the Saudi Arabia of natural gas, and that affects electricity. So mm -hmm. it is a long-term bull factor that we have low energy prices in the U.S. But with regard to um, the um, potential for fund, a resurgence yes, in inflation, so the the answer is there's a little bit of a sign of that, and that's why it's better to look at Case Shiller than the ridiculous stuff that the BLS puts out. So we actually <laughs> have had, like for instance, we just marked our we didn't update our website yet, but. We just put out a release yesterday that now our measure is up to two. So because Case Shiller is actually ticking up. Now, I would still argue. I see. So it was 1.3 <laughs> in September. Um, in the month before that, it was like 0 0.89. Uh, and now it's at two. So right. your index is indeed coming back up. Right. So, I mean, if the Fed was ever looked at it, of course, they might start to be worried. But they're worried about what it was like a, a year <laughs> and a half ago. So, but... I would still say that the chances of rates skyrocketing with the Fed uh, having short-term rates above five and mortgage rates almost at, almost at eight o'clock, eight eight percent is pretty low. It's not impossible, but it's pretty low. So we're not really concerned about that. We think it's kind of just normalizing. And also rents do matter. And there are a lot of apartments coming online in the next year. So the chances of a big resurgence in um, housing costs are pretty low. And then it's not really gonna affect Fed policy because it would take them 18 months to figure out that it was actually <laughs> happening. So <laughs> what are we doing here? Um, I know you're, you're still bullish on bonds here. So how are you guys kind of positioning yourselves these days? Well, you know, we're, we sort of are the self-proclaimed uh, preferred stock kings. Okay. <laughs> so we love, um, it is self-proclaimed by the way, but um, we love preferred stocks. If you really look at it, particularly funds like ours, have actually outperformed like almost all other fixed income. So they have higher coupons, which means they have lower duration. You can look all this up in the terminal because duration is kind of hard to calculate. <clears throat> and what also happens with preferred is a lot of retail investors sell them in downturns. So you can buy them well below par. And then the final thing is very unusual about the asset class. It um, has a lot of fixed to floating. So our fund's about over 50% fixed to floating. And why that's important is that all these rates were set when Fed funds was at two, they're bumping up to five, so you're getting a 3% bump in a good portion of it. So we would urge investors to take a look at that. You can buy funds like ours, or you can do it directly. If you do it directly, you, you might want to get a terminal, though, because it's pretty complicated. You have to look up all the... <laughs> yes, you should get a terminal. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the uh, you can use in the infracapfunds.com website for your inflation uh, data, everything else on the Bloomberg terminal. <laughs> Jay, we called you in here because um, the EU says that the euro area and its biggest economies are going to avoid a recession. You've been bearish on the European Union. What do you think is going to happen in that economy? Well, we prefer real-time data. <laughs> um, as opposed to like econometric models. And so if you follow the recent data, even this morning on ECO uh, Eurozone, there was a terrible industrial production report that came out, forgot, I think it's over down over 1%. But also you can access on the web a, uh, the equivalent of the Atlanta GDP now. And so the Eurozone GDP now is tracking at a negative 1.2% annualized rate I mean, the quarters early on to be fair but that was also um, you know presaging that we would have a recession last quarter too and then all that's just the individual data is terrible and there's no bull case because we had two rate increases last quarter and keep in mind that 45 percent of mortgages are floating rate in europe 
So those, those increases haven't even yet shown up in retail sales. So there's, and they, of course, don't have the energy cost advantage. They don't have any of the advantage of the U.S. They don't have a shortage of housing. They don't have counter-cyclical infrastructure spending. Their um, <clears throat> natural gas prices are five times ours. Wow. So we have a big, yep. con so they're really kind of a disaster in our data shows. And I wouldn't be too focused on the, um, your official forecast because they, like update them every, they're a little bit like the BLS, they update it every six months. So it's, you're gonna, you'd be the last. <laughs> Industrial production in the Eurozone fell 1.1%. That was worse than expected. That data just out uh, about um, 10 hours ago. And uh, industrial production year over year was down 6.9%. So it's just yeah. awful. It's yeah. just yeah. flat out Very awful. bad. Yeah. All right, Jay, thanks so much for coming in again. Really appreciate it. Taking a walk across town. Jay Hatfield, he's the CEO. He is the founder and he's the portfolio manager of Infrastructure Capital advisors uh they like preferred stocks you don't hear that too often that's pretty cool you're listening to the tape catch our live program bloomberg markets weekdays at 10 a.m eastern on bloomberg radio the tune in app bloomberg.com and the bloomberg business app you can also listen live on amazon alexa from our flagship new york station just say alexa play bloomberg 1130 check out our next guest right away chris whalen he's a chairman of whalen global advisors Chris, thanks so much for joining us uh, via Zoom here. I mean, you look at this market over the past couple of days, it's basically telling you inflation is whipped. We've seen peak rates. Um, what do you take away from some of the data we've received over the past couple of days? Well, the fact that we're looking at data of this maturity tells you something. Um, we should take a somewhat more uh, nuanced approach, I think, to rates because the volatility has been so enormous one way or another and also the quality of you know forward rates for example the 30 and 60 day rates in the mortgage market which is the foundation of the treasury market by the way uh has been all over the place so today i would tell you the belly of the curve that contract closest to par is still a six and a half to a seven so that means to make money you have to be writing seven and three quarter percent mortgages if not eights you know what I mean? So things have yet to settle down, even though we rallied a point in yield over the last, what, week? Uh, so you know, the aspirational aspects of this, I think, <laughs> cannot be dismissed. So um, you, you've got to be writing um, higher rate mortgages. And how is the mortgage um, outlook right now, Chris? Because the housing market sure. seems to have ground to a halt at least in terms of existing homes, which means probably f very few people are going out and getting those mortgages. Well, it's largely a cash buyer's market today. You're seeing compression above the median, which is about $450,000, by the way. Uh, the average is three thirty, I think, if you look at the mortgage banker's data. So, you know, what, the way I would say it is we were dragging the yield curve up. So it's been very hard for lenders to make any premium when they sell their loans into the bond market. And that's changed a bit. You may also see some lenders have a good quarter because of the rate rally we've seen. You know, we had a pretty decent quarter in the second quarter for a lot of publicly traded lenders as well. So when the sun shines, they make hay. And I think, uh, you know, we'll just have to see because the next auction, we could be having a tough time. And you could see rates back up again. So for you know mortgage lenders, 
you lost a lot of money on your hedge, <laughs> but you're making a lot of money on the assets that you have. By the way, the last auction or, or the, the auction last week that, um, you know, kicked things off before Powell came out and confirmed what looked like a more hawkish bias. Um, mm. Was that actually affected by the ICBC hack? That's what the early reports from the FT said, but I just don't get it. I, I don't know if there's a connection there. I do know that some very smart people whom I have a lot of respect for that run banks are extremely concerned about that hack, even though it was small, uh, because it implies that they're not sufficiently vigilant in terms of operational risk. Um, at the same time, as you saw, I, I worry that Secretary Yellen was essentially backed off and forced to downsize the long bond auction because the dealers told her it wasn't going to get done. And you still had a spike in rates, Matt. So that worries me. It reminds me of when I was a little younger and we used to worry about treasury auctions. Uh, <laughs> we haven't had that worry in 20 years. Yeah, but now it moves uh, markets. I you know, now, you know, we had the we had a bad auction and three minutes later, you saw the tail and the S&P 500 sold off. Um, it makes yes. you think maybe um, Yellen and uh, whatever you call that Treasury Committee had a point when they decided not to sell, you know, 100 year debt at zero interest. No, they should have done it. Come on. You're a fund manager. It doesn't matter <laughs> if you work at the Treasury or not. You obviously should have done that trade. You should have funded infrastructure when that trade was available. We didn't do it. We just spent the money. So I, I think there's always second guessing. But today, I think Treasury is facing a lot of tactical challenges. And that's just the reality. And it will affect stocks, no question. The banks are down. Are they cheap? I don't know. It depends which bank, right? <laughs> exactly. Hey, Chris, what are, we're not hearing about too much recently is the commercial real estate exposure for a lot of these banks. What's the latest on that? Oh, it continues. You're not going to see most of it because it's private. This occurs behind closed doors with lawyers. And these are professionals on both sides. But if you look at some of the specialty press, like The Real Deal, which I love, by the way, <laughs> there's a lot of stuff going on. There are assets that are being marked down. Um, you're going to see a wholesale markdown of rent-stabilized assets in New York after the FDIC is done selling the signature bank. Uh, properties, so rent-controlled properties that, frankly, are unsaleable, but they're going to try. Uh, my fear, and I think a lot of people's fear, is that they're going to hit a very low bid to get out because, ultimately, the receivership of the FDIC is not a long-term investor. They're there to turn the assets into cash and try and minimize loss. That's their mandate. So, you know, they have retained a majority stake in a lot of these buildings, Matt, because nobody wants them, yeah. given the political environment in New York. Well, I have been uh, reading... 2019 that... rent control legislation has to be repealed, or we're going to destroy rental assets in New York as an asset class, because the banks can't fund them. They can't. I mean, and, 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 and uh, residential doesn't even look nearly as bad as office, right? Because you mentioned the real deal... And I've been reading well, that website lately, yeah. realdeal.com, because we yeah. had this guy in, Egal Namdar, who I think <laughs> maybe a, I think it's fair to call him a billionaire. Certainly when we last vetted his holdings, mm. he was in 2021. It's like he and a couple of other guys 
with whom he works are the only people buying office in New York. No one else is trying to catch these falling knives. Well, you, you have to have a view of the real estate value that is to say the land and then the asset that's on it and whether or not it can be utilized in what's going to be a different business case. You know, I think a lot of people see New York going to a largely residential uh, configuration, but I don't think you can pay for this city unless you have business uh, as a partner. And that's what's got to change. We have got to stop attacking the business community because they'll leave. And they did, but they went down south and built a lot of new buildings. And now we're overbuilt in Texas. We're overbuilt <laughs> in some other markets. No, seriously, the herd left. They were told to leave, you know, by the Democrats of New York. And they did because the capital is mobile. Miami, Matt, you'd spend time down there. It's yeah. insane. And then look at around the region. Look at the uh, canal zone. Look at some other cities in the region. They're all getting buried in investment in commercial real estate, residential real estate. I hope what happens in Miami stays in Miami because I have spent some time no, down there. Look at the <laughs> but canal I don't want to talk zone. about it publicly. Look at the canal zone in Panama. It looks just like Miami. Big empty buildings. Yes. Okay. Hey, you write a lot for the institutional risk analyst. Um, yes. Uh, and one of your uh, posts recently, Big What, Rising Debt Service and Falling Liquidity, um, you're writing about you know the mortgage and the lending business, but I'm thinking about mm. the U.S. And I wonder what is your take on the fact that we're going to have $900 billion in interest rate servicing costs next year. Does that yes. change? Do you see rates coming down and that gets better? Or is that something that Washington can fix somehow? Well, Washington has got to start reducing the deficit. I know that's not fashionable, but from a tactical perspective, just looking at the cash balances that Treasury has to maintain in order to move payments around, um, it's a problem. You know, the Fed collateralizes all of that, Matthew. They go out and buy bonds to collateralize the Treasury general account, and that's a market-moving event, too. So the size of the Treasury is becoming an issue in the markets. We're seeing crowding out come back as a novel concept, right, in economic thinking, uh, because it's so obvious. You know, luckily, housing is down. Imagine if we were trying to finance 4 or $5 trillion this year in housing at the same time right. Treasury was out raising all this money. We're, we're going to do a trillion five this year. Nothing. All right, so, Chris, I got to yeah. wrap you up there, unfortunately, for time. But Chris Whalen, love to get your insight on the industry. He is the institutional risk <laughs> analyst uh, and also chairman of Whalen Global Advisors. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com techsf. You're listening to The Tape 
Catch our live program, Bloomberg Markets, weekdays at 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. The stock market likes biotech. The stock market likes AI. So how about an AI-inspired biotech company? And how about an AI-inspired biotech company that has a new shareholder disclosed just today? That would be Kathy Wood's ARK Funds. You put it all together, Matt, the stock's up 16%. We're talking about recursion, pharmaceuticals, the symbol is RXRX. And we just happen to have Tina Marriott Larson, the president and CEO, COO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals with us. So that's that's a coincidence, a serendipity, I guess. I don't know what you want to call it. That's a face-ripping rally face ripping rally tino what what have you learned about your new shareholder today um well thank you um i don't usually use the term face ripping but i uh, appreciate <laughs> the introduction great to be here paul and matt and yeah like like all of our uh, shareholders it's great to have these strategic long-term thinking shareholders that really share our vision for the future of where the biotech industry going, the tech industry is going, and really the opportunity to use technology to create the next generation of biopharmaceutical company. So what kind of strides are you making? Because, you know, it's great to have uh, a, a very famous and, you know, followed shareholder. It's great to um, see your stock take off in double-digit gains. But at the end of the day, I imagine your ultimate goal is I guess curing cancer, right? I see that you do a ton of oncology work in partnership with some of the biggest names in the business. So how is adding AI to the mix um, getting you closer to that goal? Yeah, absolutely. Cancer is a big focus for us. And as you mentioned, our partnerships, we recently announced an expansion of our long-term partnership with Bayer. We're going to be working on up to seven new oncology programs with them, applying the, the latest and greatest version of our technology platform. Um, in October, we announced the first milestone and option from our partnership with Roche and Genentech, which was in oncology as well. And so we're definitely focused on oncology as, as well as other areas like neuroscience, um, once again, with our partners at Genentech Roche. So we're really seeing uh, great progress in implying these technology platforms, this emerging field of tech bio to really improve the outcomes in the way that we do R&D research to discover new Well, what are the most important breakthroughs that you've made or what are some breakthroughs that you're hoping to make? You know, this is what, uh, these are the moonshots that Wall Street bets on. What, what's yours? Yeah, absolutely. And so we are industrializing drug discovery. So if you think about the way that uh, many small biotech companies, maybe they're looking for one or two drugs in very targeted areas of biology or, or very specific areas, say, of cancer. We're actually looking across human biology. Our mission is decoding human biology to radically improve lives. And we're using the technology to do that. And so you see that we have vets in neuroscience, we have vets in oncology, we have our own internal pipeline of molecules in things like rare disease and oncology. And we're actually gonna see our first readouts. Uh, we're anticipating those next year for our internally developed drugs. But ultimately the goal is to scale and industrialize so that, you know, in the same way that other industries have been disrupted by technology, so that we can bring better patients, better medicines to patients faster and more cost effectively. So specifically for your company, Recursion Pharmaceuticals, what do you guys do? What is your technology? How do you bring AI or just technology broadly defined to the, you know, the pharmaceutical and the biotech space? 
Yeah, it really starts with data sets. And so uh, I, I like to use the Google Maps analogy quite a bit. I'm, I'm old enough to have navigated around, say, Washington, D.C. using a Rand McNally atlas. And, <laughs> and that was pretty hard, <laughs> um, and, you know, at night after you'd like land there on a plane. And so um, and, and what Google Maps revolutionized that uh, part of our lives by both creating great data sets of, of the earth, of cities, of maps, and also creating the algorithms and computational technology in order to analyze those large data sets. So the analogy to what recursion is doing is that we are creating data sets. We have 20 petabytes of data, 25 petabytes of data, actually it grows so fast, that we have actually grown in-house here in our laboratories. To the right of me, there's a whole bunch of robots doing science right now, creating these in-house data sets, modeling the human body um, right here in the laboratory. And then we add data sets, like we recently announced that we have developed a partnership with Tempus and they have real world data. So we have preferred access now to over um, 20 petabytes of data from 100,000 actual cancer patients um, and, and the outcomes that those patients have had out in the real world. So we're constructing these very large data sets and then using tools like machine learning and artificial intelligence in order to use that model of biology to find new medicines for diseases that today are underserved or unserved and have been intractable previously for the industry to find cures. It's hard for a normal person to know what a petabyte is. Even if you, I think it's a lot of numbers. Even if you Google it, apparently it's a thousand terabytes. What's a terabyte? Uh, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the fun analogies we have used here is that uh, if every high definition film ever made is a few petabytes, and so we have far, far, far more data than every if you had uh, if you streamed every movie ever made in high definition. <laughs> so these are very. Very large. Data. Nice. Paul is actually on a mission to do that right now. Exactly. Streaming yeah, right. every single <laughs> HD movie on the uh, New Jersey transit. Transit. Yep. So Tina, uh, I mean, like a thousand years, Paul. But good luck I know, you. I know. It, I have a long commute. Um, so Tina, talk to us. About, are, is the biotech industry is it open to this type of technology coming into what has been historically, you know, just very I don't know, sciencey stuff. Yeah. I, I, I think the the openness is growing. Uh, you know, my my background. I spent uh, decades ago at the revolution of biotechnology. I was at the the Genentech, the company that led the biotech revolution yep. of our industry when we we hit an R and D. Um, they're one of our biggest partners now, and and now being at this cutting this leading of the tech bio revolution. And even a few years ago, uh, when I joined um, our co-founder and CEO Chris Gibson here at Recursion, there was still a lot of skepticism um, about how AI and technology was going to change things. I think now that artificial intelligence has become so much more broadly um, impacting our lives you know, across industries, now that that kind of skepticism really has switched to curiosity. And I think now you see large pharmaceutical companies really trying to craft their AI strategies, getting really curious about how this is going to revolutionize the companies. And so I think we've kind of transited most of that skepticism as, as to if technology and computational technology revolutionizes the industry. And now the question is how. Hey, Tina, really fascinating uh, discussion. I really appreciate it. Tina Marriott Larson, President and CEO of Recursion Pharmaceuticals. Uh, ticker symbol is RXRX. It's a NASDAQ traded uh, stock. And it was just disclosed today that Kathy Wood's ARC funds have uh, acquired a stake in this company. But our producer, Eric Molo, booked Tina for the show before, before. we knew that. And in fact, he booked Chris, the founder, back in July. Wow. 
So he essentially beat Kathy Wood to it. I know. Now, did he buy any stock, did Mr. Mollo? I'm guessing the fact that he's still back there behind the other side of the glass, that the answer is no. Uh, but we appreciate the booking, <laughs> nevertheless. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.